Well, having finished the um, epistles of Jesus in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this morning we return to 2 Corinthians. We've been in second, walking our way through 2 Corinthians over the last couple of years. We're in cha- the middle of chapter 6, and, um, and so today we plop down, back down into verse 11, 12, and 13. We'll spend the rest of this fall in 2 Corinthians, and then we'll take a, uh, at a break in December for uh, talking about the Christmas story. And then in the new year, we'll, uh, we're not going to be doing 2 Corinthians. We're going to take a break from that for a little while and then uh, and do something else that I'll tell you later. Once I figure out what it is. Okay. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, 11 to 13. And I might remind you that I, uh, I paused... The reason I paused this summer is because this passage, in my opinion, is something I didn't want to preach to a summertime, more sparse group. So uh, I, I think this is really an important passage for us to face and, and be nourished by. 2 Corinthians six eleven to 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Second Corinthians is the Apostle Paul's most personal epistle. The attitude of the Corinthians toward Paul had soured under the influence of some detractors who had infiltrated the church and accused him of a number of different things. They said he was unimpressive in person and awkward in speech. They questioned his the legitimacy of his apostleship. Some had even portrayed him as crafty and deceitful. And though he rejoices over some recent encouraging signs in this letter, he also appeals to the Corinthians determined to rebond with them. For he knows that their bond with him is closely connected to the continuation of their bond with Christ. And here in 2 Corinthians 6.11, Paul begins a passionate, personal appeal to the Corinthians. He is fighting to win back their trust and their affection. Paul pleads with them from an open heart. My heart, he says, is wide open. He is not withholding himself or hardening himself toward them. They are like his own children, his precious treasures. Now, as a theologian, Paul is unsurpassed. But this apostolic burst of affection helps us to see that the Apostle Paul 
was not just an intellectual theologian. He was a very relational, very loving, very affectionate man of God. Was he like this naturally? I think if you think back about his story, you'll know that, the tr- that that's laughable to, th- to think that he was like this naturally. He was rigid, judgmental, arrogant, intolerant, even cruel. So what was the secret behind Paul's affectionate attitude then? He was filled with a very relational, very loving, and very affectionate Christ who had captured him and was dominating him in a beautiful way. In appealing with an open heart to the Corinthians to see their hearts, in appealing with an open heart to the Corinthians, to open their heart to him, the apostle is reflecting the spirit of the one who said, how often have I longed to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Or all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is God's attitude toward his people. Though we resist him in a thousand ways, every day he amazingly continues to reach out to us in love. It would not be inaccurate, I believe, to take these words that we have before us and adjust them and put them in the mouth of God speaking to us. My mouth has spoken freely to you, O Christian. My heart is open wide. For Christ has spoken freely to us and opened his heart toward us. I have called you friends, he said to his disciples. For all things I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. John 15, 15. What an amazing God we have that even in spite of his justice and righteousness, yet he opens his heart to sinners. But Paul was not just reflecting the loving appeal of Christ. In the Lord's name, he was also calling the Corinthians to the same thing. He was calling them to open their hearts to him as he had opened his heart to them. We've seen God's open heart toward his people reflected in the open heart of Paul. But now we see that he calls, that God calls us to have open hearts as well. God wants us to have the same attitude as Jesus had and the same attitude that Jesus in Paul, was reflected. Jesus didn't come to protect himself, but to give himself away. He calls his followers to the same thing. 
by opening his heart to those straying Corinthians, Paul was following in his master's footsteps. And he calls us to follow as well. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, he said. And I think, and, and think about who Paul's heart was open to. He had originally come to Corinth at great risk of his life to bring them the gospel. In love, he had stayed with them longer than he stayed in any other city up to that point, a year and a half. And during that time, he served them, he taught them, he encouraged them, he built them up in the faith. But when he left to go back home, some Judaizers infiltrated the church at Corinth and started spreading false accusations and criticisms of Paul in order to undermine him before this congregation. And sadly, many of the people who had come to Christ under Paul and been the recipients of his ministry began to buy into these evil reports and these criticisms of Paul. And this spirit of unhappiness with Paul began to foment in the church at Corinth. These are the people that Paul is speaking to when he says, My heart is open to you. They were people who had hurt him. People who had turned on him. People who had believed lies about him. People who had bad-mouthed him to others. Just like Jesus had wanted to gather his children together, as a hen gathers her chicks, even though they were unwilling. And just as Jesus had stretched out his hands to a disobedient and obstinate people, so Paul is doing the same thing to the Corinthians. Paul did not give in to the temptation to resent the Corinthians or to slam shut the door of his heart toward them in order to protect himself from further hurt. He didn't just keep having some kind of theoretical love for them either, but he kept his heart open to them. He put himself out there. He continued to make himself vulnerable. Sadly, this kind of attitude is rare today among Christian people in our land. Most folks feel justified in protecting themselves and are very hesitant about opening their lives to others, especially to those who have hurt them. But this attitude is not from the Spirit of Christ, but from our sinful flesh and from our unbelief. Sure, it makes sense to protect yourself. Today it's considered common sense, even in the Christian world. But that doesn't mean it's the Christ-like thing to do. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't act that way or have that attitude towards you? Aren't you glad that he didn't act out of self-protection instead of acting out of loving determination to secure our salvation? I know of no argument in Scripture which can be made to show that God has called us to protect ourselves in this way. Instead, it's filled with calls to serve others 
and serve Him and entrust ourselves to Him as our protector. Sure, it may seem foolish to make yourself vulnerable, and you may get hurt if you do, but I can guarantee you'll never get hurt as much as Jesus was hurt for you and for me. If you're worried about getting hurt, who are you thinking about? Yourself. You're operating out of fear. And God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1.7 Fear comes from us. Love comes from the Lord. And if you're worried about getting hurt, then you're being driven by fear instead of by love. So, ask yourself this question, who in my life, who in my life can I honestly say this to? My mouth has spoken freely to you. My heart is opened wide. Is there anybody that you can say that to in your life? It's a worthy question to ask. For Paul and for Jesus, they could say this to many. And I believe if we were really filled with the Spirit of Christ, we'd be the same. What holds us back? Well, to put it bluntly, I believe it's idolatry. We have an idol of human approval, or earthly security, or creature comforts. We have our minds set not on the things above, but on the things of this world. We're looking at the winds and the waves, not keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the master of the storm. Christ isn't enough for us. We think we need lots of other things in order to have real peace and happiness in this life. But if there is a barrier between us and others, it's because there's a barrier between us and the Lord. And the worst thing is that we don't tend to see it as idolatry. We usually blame it on others. I'm angry because of what others have done to me. I'm downcast because of the way other, others treat me. I don't have close relationships because I've been hurt in the past. Remember what I've said before, there's a great benefit in bitterness. The benefit of bitterness is that you don't have to take blame for your own unhappiness. You can point it at somebody else. And yet, Paul tells us, or tells the Corinthians in verse 12, yet you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. You see, our problem is in our hearts. Our sin is our sin. No one else can make us sin. People did all sorts of evil things to Jesus, but he never sinned. And the reason we're different from him is because we are sinful in our hearts. Whatever problem there is between us and God is not God's problem. 
He has extended his arms to us. He has sent his son to us to provide a way of forgiveness and free access to him. If there is still a barrier between you and God, it is your barrier, not God's. We are restrained by our own affections, by our own desires, by our own pride, by our own rebellion, by our own unbelief. God's heart is open to us. And God's heart open to us. And our hearts open to God. And our hearts open to each other. These things are all linked together. If our hearts are not open to one another, then in some way, our hearts are not open to God. When we blame others for our problems, we are really blaming God. And as long as we blame God for our problems, there's no repentance in our hearts because we don't think we've done anything wrong. We don't think it's our fault. And if this is the way we think, we can expect no blessing from God. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God has called us into relationship with him, with one another, and yes, even with the world. Just as he has flung wide the door for us to enter into a relationship with him, so he calls us to do the same to one another. Romans 15:7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And that doesn't mean when you see people at church on Sunday morning, you say hi to them or you greet them. That's not what this is talking about. The word here in Greek for welcome, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, is the word for receive, accept, Take as yours. Really, this is saying, take others into your heart, just as Christ has taken you into his heart. And this is a commandment. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus said, that you love one another. We can't take this lightly. This is not optional. And yes, it's sometimes hard. None of us get to hang around people who are perfect. I have a book here by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. Isn't that a great title? Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And uh, if you've had trouble with relationships... This is a book for you to read. It's a powerful book about how the gospel transforms uh, the way we think about relationships and how it helps us to enter into relationships and repair relationships. It's written by two men who were struggling with each other even as they wrote it. And that adds a certain beauty to the book. They wrote it together. They literally sat down and wrote the book together, brainstorming each paragraph, each chapter, as they worked together, instead of just dividing it up. 
But the title itself tells us some important things, that relationships are a mess. And because of this, you see, we're tempted to hide from others, to protect ourselves from relationships. But the problem is that we desperately need them, and we're commanded to cultivate them because Christ wants us to reflect Him, and He is a relational God. The Trinity was in relationship since before the creation. All eternity passed. But there's one more obstacle. Many feel that they're too busy to have close Christian relationships. It's pretty clear that the early Christians counted their fellowship as more important than their careers. And there are indications of this. You know, in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day they attended the temple together and broke bread in their homes. This was the lifestyle that their reconciliation in Christ had yielded. And then... You know, a generation or so later, we're told in the book of Hebrews, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The point is, we got issues, we got problems, we have needs, we need each other, we need to exhort each other, we need to be working together that we are walking with the Lord and walking rightly in the Lord and it's a daily thing then later in the book of Hebrews the more famous passage, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, again, we need to help each other, we're we're living this life together let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day coming. Now here it is, a generation after the original book of Acts began, you know, Pentecost and such, and here we have uh, already this spirit of uh, not being a part of the fellowship, not being connected to other believers, is already beginning to seep in. And he rebukes that spirit. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Because we need each other. Of course, if someone's heart is actually wide open to other believers and circumstances beyond their control prevent them from having fellowship, then God will have mercy on them, as he has in many, with many people. But it is also very possible to use one's busyness as an excuse for not being devoted to fellowship. Either because relationships are threatening, or because our hearts aren't actually open to God's people. And it's possible for one's work to suck up all the available time, not because it has to, but because either success or material prosperity has become our idol. 
in contemporary Christian culture, close spiritual relationships are generally considered optional. A luxury, not a necessity. Good to have if you can fit them in. But it's not a big deal if you can't. I don't believe that this is consistent with the New Testament. Jesus went to great lengths to exhort his people to love one another. And when he said that, he was not just meaning, look, don't hate each other. It's not enough just to not hate other Christians. That's not loving them. And it's not enough to just have a good feeling at your heart, in your heart toward people that you never spend any time with. That's not what he's talking about either. Love one another. He meant being involved in people's lives. Helping others and letting them help you. He meant opening your heart to the ones he died to save. Opening your heart to the ones he calls his precious children. And he calls your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Opening your heart to those you will spend eternity with. We come now to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is never in the New Testament something that is taken individually. There's no indication in any story or epistle that Somebody had his own quiet time and has the Lord's Supper by himself. It is a corporate sacrament. It is something that we do together. Because there's two dynamics going on here. The vertical dynamic where we are communing with the Lord. But there's also a horizontal component to it. We are in this together. We are feeding upon Christ together. And when we declare the Lord's death and the efficacy of that death for our salvation, and when we declare that we belong to the Lord, and we're taking this and bringing it into ourselves and not just leaving it out there, we're also proclaiming that we are one of many who are doing the same thing. That's why we eat of one loaf. Now, I'm not saying that churches that don't eat of one loaf are somehow uh, less. But this is the reason why we've always wanted to partake of one loaf. Because it's one body. It's all from the same place. And really, each of us gets a peace. And we're brought together in Christ. Just as, as this loaf of bread is many uh, things brought together into one loaf, so we are brought together in Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Thank you that you suffered because your heart was open to us. 
Oh Lord, forgive us for the way that we hurt you by rebelling against you, by taking you lightly, by casting you aside, by turning away, even by spitting in your face. But thank you that you, in your mercy, stretched out your arms to us, suffered for us, received the penalty that we deserved. And dear Lord, what a great blessing of grace we have received from you. And we want to be people, Lord, who live for you, whose whole lives are consumed with you, who are not controlled by our own impulses, our own instincts, our own preferences, but by your spirit within us. For this world, O oh Lord, needs us to be that. So now help us as we partake of this sacrament. We celebrate in it, Lord, what you have done, and we celebrate the fact that you've done it for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.